Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today will hear from Mia Jankowicz, a reporter with Business Insider on the anti-vaxxer racket. And then we'll hear from Sanford Jacobi on a strange alliance between organized labor and Wall Street to mount the shareholder revolution. Testimony by an enemy of COVID vaccines before the Ohio legislature attracted global attention in June when a certain osteopath, Sherry Tenpenny, Haypenny is more like it, made some wild assertions about risks from the shots. Here's a bit of what she said. Some of the information that I think had been discussed on your podcast related to EMF frequencies. That was a thought. And, and it was you, a, because now, because right now that? we're all kind of um, hypothesizing. I mean, what is it that's actually being transmitted that's causing all of these things? Is it a combination of the protein, which now we're finding has a metal attached to it? I'm sure you've seen the pictures all over the Internet of people who've had these shots and now they're magnetized. They can put a key on their forehead, it sticks. They can put spoons and forks all over them and they can stick. Because now we think that there's a metal piece to that. There's been people who've long suspected that there was some sort of an interface, yet to be defined, an interface between what's being injected in these shots and all of the 5G towers. Not proven yet, but we're trying to figure out what is it that's being transmitted to these unvaccinated people. I've never noticed anything sticking to me, but maybe I got a bad batch of the Moderna. Sherry Tenpenny is not a lone nut. She has plenty of colleagues in this dangerous business of sowing skepticism about vaccines. You can hear some of that crowd's rhetorical techniques in that 50-second excerpt we just listened to. That's a thought. It's not been proven yet. Make an outlandish claim, then distance yourself from it. You're just raising questions and letting your gullible audience draw its own conclusions. Mia Jankowicz, a London-based reporter for Business Insider, looked into Tenpenny's background for an article that was posted a few days ago. Mia Jankowicz. A couple of months ago, uh, many of us watched in slack-jawed amazement as Dr. Sherry Tenpenny offered testimony to the Ohio State Legislature, in which she said, among other things, that the COVID vaccine can make people magnetic and connect you to a 5G data network. Who exactly is uh, Sherry Tenpenny? Well, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny is a doctor of osteopathy who is based in Ohio who for the last 20 years or so has been extremely active in the anti-vaccine community. She's not new to this game. She's been spreading this sort of uh, talk for some time. No, exactly. I mean, when I when she appeared, you know, when that clip of her talking about magnetism and vaccines went viral and sort of got reported on in quite a few places, got its own political fact check, I think those who are not particularly involved in anti-vaccine activism felt like she was sort of a, came out of nowhere. But in fact, she has been at this for a very, very long time, as have an awful lot of her colleagues in the same anti-vaccine community. And uh, she apparently thought she did a really great job, right? Right, right. She does a regular Instagram Live um, Bible study group, which often sort of veers into anti-vaccine kind of talk. And she posts, she, she posts there quite regularly and she talks about her day there quite regularly. So I went and checked that out um, the night she had the same night. And she talked about it, in fact, to her to her Bible study group. And she really thought she knocked it out of the park. I mean, she sort of said she'd had she'd really done well at refuting the vaccine science that was being presented to her in that meeting. Do you have people like this in Britain? I mean, it seems like a very American thing, but are there people like this in Britain? We do, but I think not to the same extent. So there's a woman whose name completely escapes me right now, um, an ex-NHS nurse. She's, I think she's now been taken off the, the system, um, who led protests in London, anti-lockdown protests, anti-masking, anti-vaccine. So there is an extent of that, even coming from the medical community. But my understanding is that vaccine acceptance is pretty high in the UK and that people are more or less just pleased to come and get it. Now, she's certainly not alone. She was a, what, on the dirty dozen list? Right. <laughs> the disinformation dozen is what they've been called by the Centre for Countering Digital Hate. Um, they've produced a, a two or three reports on this group of people, actually, which include people like Dr. Andrew Wakefield. Here's the guy with autism, right? Right, the MMR, uh, MMR vaccine causes autism kind of thing, which was completely debunked decades ago. People like um, the Kennedy fellow, 
people like that and Dr. Mercola, there are kind of uh, a group of people who have uh, who really kind of network very well together, according to the CCDH, and uh, really exchange ideas on how to spread anti-vaccine ideas and, according to the CCDH, how to profit from it. She has a, quite a reach. I mean, she's got banned from Twitter, but uh, she um, certainly has other media to uh, to spread her um, her lunacy, right? Right. So her Telegram following is, is about 150,000 people alone. And I don't think that was even counted in, I'll have to check, but the CCDH report, which said that these 12 people are responsible for up to 65% of vaccine disinformation out there at all. They still only, I think, looked at Twitter and Facebook for that. But it wasn't even taking into account things like her enormous Telegram reach, where she you know, really pumps out a lot of information and the views she's had on things like, you know, she's regularly on InfoWars with Alex Jones. She has a podcast, um, which has just been taken down, actually, her Podbean podcast. But, you know, she's had millions of views. I, th- I counted up a kind of, I did a rough count of about 100, 100 sorry, 1.5 million views of her combined shows and podcasts and speeches and things like that. She uh, w- was on the Alex Jones show recently, and or September, you say. Um, she predicted that the vaccine rollout was going to be horrific. Uh, what's going to be horrific about it? What does she have in mind there? Pretty much everything is going to be bad about it. If you don't drop dead immediately um, of anaphylaxis, you're going to, down the line, you're very likely, or you're, you know, you've got a strong chance of suffering all kinds of heart problems. Spike proteins are going to cross the blood-brain barrier. And do things, I don't know, terrible things to you. Children are going to grow up stunted. Boys will become eunuchs, she said, which is something I put to her. And she said she hadn't said, but I really listened. And um, she had said that. Girls will be infertile, which is quite a common anti-vaxxer kind of um, foreboding. Yeah, they love that one, but there's no evidence for that at all, right? No, these claims are unevidenced. In fact, I, I decided to take her claims to a couple of experts. Firstly, to uh, Professor Raymond Tellier, Who's, uh, who works at uh, McGill University in Canada. He's uh, an epidemiologist, he's a microbiologist, he's an expert on vaccines, pandemics, and he's really sort of a top authority in the area. And he just said to me, um, to paraphrase Luke Skywalker, amazing, almost everything she said there was wrong. He had looked over a deeply detailed scientific kind of list of things that could go wrong with the vaccine that she'd put together. And he said, this this is, and he gave me a very detailed set of reasons as to why addressing each of the sort of scientific mumbo jumbo that she was using. Oh, of course, they would react to that by saying uh, it's all a big lie. You know, big science is a lie. Big pharma is a lie. And, you know, they're, they're, they're just lying to you for some reason or other. <laughs> is it clear why they would be lying to you? I, I asked her, I said, you know, this guy has said it's all rubbish, what you've put in this document she has, which is called uh, 20 Mechanisms of Injury, how COVID-19 injections can make you sick or even kill you. And I said, look, Ray Montelier has said this, this just simply doesn't work for many, many reasons. I sent her his detailed refutation and she said, you know, I, I have doctors and scientists who, t- who tell me it is right. And later, in response to another question, she said something to me like, in the end, science is all about, well, it's my my science versus your science or something like that. But I thought that was a really interesting perspective on what science is. That's really not the way science works. <laughs> no, I mean, I imagine science as a collective endeavor of trying to pursue as close as possible to the truth. And when, when, that, when what you hold to be true is challenged, you work with it and you talk with it and you, um, and, you, know, you will, if necessary, step back from a position that turns out to be wrong. And it's not this combative, you know, I'm going to go in there like a gladiator with my, with my team of scientists and say I'm right. Of course, it's never perfect, but science is supposed to work by people publishing the results, uh, disclosing their techniques. Other labs try to reproduce your work or, or refute it. But it's all supposed to be this open kind of conversation among uh, scientists. And it's not like anybody's taking sides of my science against your science. It's all, a, like as you say, a collective endeavor. Exactly. And, you know, I have had emails from people who've said, well, you haven't spent as long looking at this as Dr. Tenpenny has. You know, Dr. Tenpenny regularly says that she has spent 40,000 hours studying the papers. And, you know, I don't doubt it. She seems extremely busy and um, extremely interested in these things. But the point is that I'm it's not for me to make the declaration. It's for me to go and talk to an appropriate expert and find out from them whether these claims are correct. And of course, so far, I've been told they're not. 
as part of my research, I um, I took one of her courses. Um, she sells for about $79, although they were reduced, um, COVID-19 course, where there's four modules. You are now talking <laughs> to a qualified anti-vaxxer because I took and passed the course. <laughs> did, um, you get a cer- did you get a certificate? <laughs> no. In fact, actually, I got 70%, so I don't know if that constitutes a pass or not. But um, as part of the materials, I mean, this consists of a, a lot of papers you can look at, um, but mostly it's a one hour video of her kind of just drawing a very loosely knitted set of theories together about why the vaccine is essentially a part and parcel kind of a broader attempt at mind control. And one of the studies she said, but there was some science in there and she studied, she cited a, an article by, um, a, a, sorry, a paper by Professor Lydia Muraska of um, Queensland University of Technology in Australia on social distancing. And it was very interesting because the slide included a quote that uh, Moravska had said that, you know, the science on this has dogma that needs re-looking at. To sort of cut a long story short, the um, Tenpenny was framing this as something that proves that social distancing is, is useless. And I took that slide and I sent it to uh, Professor Moravska and she said, this is the exact opposite of what my research actually said. This is a complete, this is, you know, opposite land interpretation of what I was saying. This is purely speculative, of course, but do you have any idea of what motivates these kinds of people? I just watched a video earlier of uh, a school board meeting in Tennessee where uh, they had some scientists uh, testifying on the effectiveness and desirability of students masking when they go back to school, and people were screaming at them and threatening their lives. Almost, yeah. Do you have any sense what motivates this passionate ignorance? Well, I mean, it seems clear that this is in part deeply politicised. Dr. Tenpenny was was invited to the Ohio State House that time by um, a, a GOP representative. It's obviously in in current conservative politics in the US is picking up on a lot of the kind of talking points, the sort of some of the more um, current talking points about things like masking and and, and vaccine mandates and things like this. Um, and it seems to be seems to go down along partisan divides. And, you know, Dr. Tenpenny has said that the, the 2020 election was um, rigged and she has said that the people at the Capitol on January the 6th were Antifa. So you can see how it falls down along a certain political, you know, talking points that sort of stand on one political side. What motivates her? I, you know, I can't presume to say. It's clear she's a very religious person. Um, it's clear she loves her work. And of course, what the CCDH have said in their report, Pandemic Profiteers, is that it's also clear that it, seems, that it makes her a lot of money. And she does at least have revenue streams that come in from this. And I asked her to, to sort of tell me how much she earns from different revenue streams, and she didn't respond. Uh, the CCDH, which she didn't confirm, did estimate that, for example, from one webinar alone, she, she made about $350,000. Um, or up to that amount. She didn't confirm that at all. But she's got several ways of making money from this. And, um, you know, an uncharitable person might say that this is this is one motivation. Of course, we wouldn't want to be uncharitable. They love to cite statistics that sound precise, but are utterly bogus, right? That Can you think of any product in industry that could have contributed to at least 45,000 deaths in the first eight months of use? Uh, that's just completely outlandish, right? Yes, that's something she asked me. I managed to get her on the phone. She said this. And the word could is very useful there because it um, doesn't, she just doesn't, she edges slightly away from saying it did. That number seems to, well, I asked her where it came from and she sent me a lawsuit being filed by um, a group called America's Frontline Doctors. Oh, yeah. They cited, right. So they kind of have been, you know, known to spread vaccine misinformation. And that they've got this lawsuit, part of which cites an anonymous computer programmer who does who says they use VAERS data. That's the data from the um, vaccine adverse event uh, event reporting system, and come up with the number forty five thousand vaccine deaths. Now, I can reverse engineer that for you if you like. Yes. The vaccine adverse event reporting system is not something that reports deaths from the vaccine. It reports, it's a canary in the coal mine kind of system where it allows people to report anything that goes wrong after you've had a vaccine. You know, you, 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 you hit your hammer with your thumb with a hammer after a vaccine. You can go on the VAERS system and say that happens. It doesn't, you don't have to prove that it's connected to the vaccine. And it's basically there for um, epidemiologists to recognise where trouble might be brewing in, in, a, in a vaccinated community. And so that they can then go and rapidly go and check if there is something wrong there. 
actually, the VAERS system has logged 6,340 deaths in people who have had the shot. That could be for any cause whatsoever. could also be a vaccine injury. It's entirely possible. But it, that means that it's about 0.0019% of all recipients of the, of the vaccine. We get to 45,000 from the calculations of this anonymous computer programmer. And, you know, this, t- this has not been tested in court yet. So I can't, t- you know, take that figure as verified. I'm speaking with Mia Jankowicz, a London-based reporter for Business Insider. You also report that, um, as often happens with these kind of right-wing conspiracists, they flirt with or get even more deeply involved with anti-Semitism. What, what was uh, Tenpenny's angle on that? Yeah, I spoke to um, I spoke to the CCDH, and they have done a great deal of research on her. And they sent me about five Telegram posts that did things like allege uh, power grabs by people like George Soros, or one post in which she said that all the people at the top of these vaccine companies are Jews, which really nudges towards you know a, a definition of anti-Semitism. Um, she also did share on her Telegram stream um, a video denying the Holocaust with the note saying that sharing is not endorsement. But I asked her why she shared it. And she kind of said, well, people can share anything. And um, I could just as well argue against that, uh, that person about the Holocaust. (laughs) But she didn't. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it was strange. Um, So that, you know, this is, uh, when I asked her, why did you say all um, CEOs of major vaccine vaccine manufacturers are Jews? She just sort of said, look, I can't take everything down whenever somebody gets upset. It's a kind of cancel culture, anti-cancel culture answer she gave me. She said, you know, do we we just say, suck it up, buttercup? Which is basically, that's a direct quote. And that was her view. You talk about the adverse effects reporting system and all that, the CDC, of course, they they will just say, well, that's part of the system of lies. That's part of big pharma. The CDC is a creature of big pharma and uh, probably the Jews as well. And so they always have a perfect mechanism for denying any kind of evidence uh, because the evidence is produced by bodies they don't trust. Well, I find that the saddest thing because, of course, in, in this world, we should think critically about major institutions and we should challenge authority. And, you know, we should encounter, you know, the, the authoritative information we get given, we should approach carefully but this is this is a different order of of criticality. This is anything you throw in my way is automatically wrong because it disagrees. Seems to be the mindset. And you know, in the end, America's a great democracy, which has produced great institutions, including you know the CDC has its problems. American governments have had their problems, but ultimately they they have broadly followed rules and and been reliable sources of information. There's a rhetorical trick that a lot of these characters use, and she does it too. It's like, just raising questions could have, you know, you pointed to the, the sponginess of that, could have uh, caused so many thousands of deaths. It's almost like they just want to introduce doubt without really fully taking responsibility for um, what they're trying to argue. Right. I mean, um, Nicole Baldwin, who's a pediatrician, um, and I didn't manage to talk to her, though I really wanted to. She spoke to Brian Stelter on CNN um, Reliable Sources a little while back, and she made a brilliant point. She said, these people don't have to prove anything. All they have to do is introduce doubt. And that's enough to influence people's behavior on a mass scale. And I thought that was really important because, you know, then, then you can't pin someone down and say, you said something wrong. You can simply say, you know, that, that they can simply say, well, you know, um, all I was doing is raising questions, like you say. Finally, um, you alluded to this a bit earlier, but let's go a bit more into it. This is a very lucrative business, right? And uh, they were quite aware that COVID was going to be a goldmine for them. That's what um, Imran Ahmed, the, the CEO of CCDH, told me. And, and on that's on the basis of the, um, the sort of uh, reporting that his researchers have managed to do. And that, for me, is, I hope, the next kind of line of inquiry to dig a bit deeper into, into that what we know is that um, that Tenpenny is making money from uh, subscriptions to podcasts, um, vaccine injury cases, testifying in those. Um, she's made money from that. That she's called as an expert witness. Um, she has been, yes. Um, and her CV says she's been on many. I found a couple, and in one case, the special master, the kind of sub judge of the situation, um, said that um, raised serious concern about the amount of money she was charging this guy. Um, to testify as his actually as his consulting physician not as an expert but she presented herself as knowing as much as an expert Um, and she made about I think gosh $28,000 from that and that was raised as a point of concern in the case 
that man was genuinely genuinely vaccine injured, the court decided. Um, But they came to that conclusion after they brought in a neurologist who who had made a completely different process of reasoning to Dr Tenpenny, who was roundly rejected as not expert in this matter. Uh, You quote uh, Imran Ahmed as saying, uh, they're bubbling over with glee at the opportunity that COVID presents to them for market growth. That is remarkably cynical, but uh, after you know reading your work and other people who've looked into this, it's it doesn't seem like uh, very far fetched. Well, like I say, that's the next thing I want to I want to dig into a bit more. Um, I didn't get an answer when I put this to Tenpenny. Um, we've had quite an exchange. Um, she didn't respond to that at all. But certainly, that looks like an area that I should be looking into more closely. Imran Ahmed did say, you know, there's no true self with these people speaking about the disinformation dozen as a group, um, there is no bottom line beyond the bottom line, he said. You know, the truth will change according to the opportunity that's presented in the current kind of moment. And of course, the pandemic, as we know, is is the major opportunity for anti-vaxxers. That was Mia Jankowicz, a London-based reporter for Business Insider. The Center for Countering Digital Hate Report on the anti-vaxxers Mia Jankowicz quoted estimates that the dozen anti-vaxxers they profiled bring in at least $35 million a year together. And they got government help for that work. Together, the group got $1.5 million in aid from the Paycheck Protection Plan, the program that was part of last year's CARES Act. One of the leaders in the field is Robert F. Kennedy Jr., son of the late senator, whose children's health defense, among other questionable things, has been promoting opposition to vaccines among black Americans by reminding them of the long history of monstrous medical experiments performed on them. Truly, this is a terrible history, but it's of no real relevance to the vaccines which are going to everyone and is clearly an attempt to sow doubt in a very sinister fashion. RFK Jr. also says Bill Gates wants to chip us for surveillance and transhumanism. Transhumanism is an anti-vaxxer thing. That CCDH report also quotes Sherry Tenpenny as saying that COVID vaccines are part of a genocidal, DNA-manipulating, infertility-causing, dementia-causing machine. She has a staff of at least 13, and her courses routinely bring in fees in the six figures. Like RFK Jr., she's also deeply concerned about a transhumanist plot engineered by Bill Gates. Dun and Bradstreet estimates her annual revenue at $4 million. There's an extremely common critique of big pharma and establishment medicine that they're all motivated by money and little else. God knows there's truth to that, but they also do produce useful drugs and treatments. Critical attention is less often applied to practitioners of alternative medicine. COVID vaccine skepticism has been quite a windfall for them. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Jen Clore and Hachiku's cover of the Raincoat song, Fairy Tale in the Supermarket, released a few weeks ago, as part of Kill Rockstar's 30th anniversary celebration of itself. Next, labor and finance. Organized labor has tried many strategies for reversing its long decline in the U.S. In the 1950s, unions represented more than a third of private sector workers. Now it's about one in 16. Union density in the public sector has remained pretty steady since the late 70s, holding it around a third of the workforce. 
One of those strategies Labor tried was a strange alliance with institutional investors, not at first glance a natural ally of the working class, during the shareholder revolution of the 1990s. That was a period when pension funds and other large investors successfully made getting the stock price up the prime task of corporate management. One of the ways management got stock prices up was by taking it out of the workers' hide through pay cuts, outsourcing, and speed-up. What did Labor hope to gain from joining with these forces? Severed Jacobi has written a book on this topic, Labor in the Age of Finance, Pensions, Politics, and Corporations from Deindustrialization to Dodd-Frank, published early this summer by Princeton University Press. Jacobi, Distinguished Research Professor of History, Management, and Public Policy at UCLA, is the author of several books of business and economic history. Sanford Jacobi. Okay, let's start by doing a quick history of the trajectory of shareholder power over the last century or so. So, you know, the quick radio version of that, a large topic. But, uh, you know, coming after the 1929 crash, the Great Depression, Wall Street was in deep disrepute, and it looked like shareholders, mostly dispersed individuals in those days, had become vestigial, like an appendix. Some lamented that, some celebrated it, but then shareholders started coming back. So could you tell us some of that history of those decades? Before the 1920s, Shares were owned by the wealthy, which included the founders of corporations and their families who inherited the shares after the founder died. And then, mostly beginning after the First World War, there was an attempt to market shares to the upper middle class, and gradually a much larger a percentage of shares came into the hands of individuals who weren't wealthy. And the concentrated holdings of uh, the founders and these families were diminished as compared to individuals. Well, when shares were concentrated, the owners had an incentive to keep an eye on the companies they invested in. But as stock Uh, went into the hands of millions of uh, upper middle class people, they had little incentive and few resources to see what was going on inside the corporation. Managers were happy with that. They had a certain amount of autonomy. But come the 1930s, when we see the rise of unions, and again, during the Second World War, when unions strengthened themselves, management had a new group to contend with. Shareholders really weren't so much of an issue, but now it was organized labor, organized workers who were an issue. And that was when there developed the notion of what's called managerialism. And what managers argued, similar to what's called stakeholder theory today, is that They ran the company on behalf of its uh, core constituencies, namely shareholders and workers, uh, and to a lesser extent, they would mention customers and suppliers and the like. And there was a somewhat overstated but nevertheless real alliance between managers and, and workers in unionized firms and some other companies. It wasn't an easy one, but uh, it existed. So what changed? Uh, Sort of the beginnings of shareholder dominance in companies, it was ideological. It started with the the decline of Keynesianism and the resurgence of uh, libertarian ideologies, which Nancy McLean has written so nicely about, in the person of uh, Milton Friedman, the uh, Chicago libertarian economist who wrote in a very popular book published in 1962 that the problem with managerialism was that it gave executives too much power. There was nobody to keep an eye on them. And it strengthened the hand of, of labor who management sometimes used as a way to fob off shareholders. And what Friedman argued was that executives did not have responsibilities to workers or to communities or even to customers. Their primary responsibility was to shareholders and the way that they could carry out their duties to shareholders 
was to focus single-mindedly on maximizing stock prices. And uh, this came to be known as shareholder primacy, that the corporation had its principles, namely shareholders, and it had executives, their agents, and the job of the agents or the executives was to boost share prices and enrich shareholders. It didn't happen right away. That was the theory. The practice came later on when, as stock passed from the hands of individuals into the hands of large financial entities, so-called institutional investors. Whereas once the majority of shares had been held by individuals, come the 1980s and 1990s, there was a, a major shift of shares to these large financial entities, pension funds, mutual funds, today ETFs, those were some of the primary institutional investors. And they began to function similarly to the owners and founders in the pre-1920s period, namely, since they owned so much stock, they had an incentive to keep an eye on what was going on in the firm and to push the firm to maximize share prices and enrich them. Well, also in the 1970s, though, we, you know, during the 50s and 60s, we saw you know, the great golden age. Profits were doing nicely. Stock prices were going up. Nobody really was troubled by overall corporate performance. But in the 70s, profits uh, stumbled. Uh, the stock market uh, turned into a pretty crappy decade, and uh, that caused uh, shareholders to uh, be annoyed. Yeah, there were, there were a number of things going on. One thing that happened in the 1980s was that American corporations stumbled and mass production industries, particularly autos, were having a hard time competing with foreign companies. The example that's always trotted out is the auto industry and the Japanese imports that rose significantly in the 80s. The 80s is when deindustrialization began. And the remedy offered by people who were Milton Friedman's ideological heirs was to get managers to single-mindedly focus on raising share prices. Uh, and to do so, they had to reduce their labor costs and manage companies in a relatively more short-term way because of pressures from shareholders. So that was part one. Yes, profit squeeze in the 70s, but also deindustrialization in the 80s, the remedy being uh, put shareholders in control. The other thing that happens in the 80s is that pension funds, who today own about 9% of the shares in American companies, saw that the baby boom generation would need assets. Pension funds would need to accumulate assets to fund the retirement of the baby boomers. And in the 80s, pension funds began to invest in shares. Before the 80s, most pension funds either were prohibited from investing in equities, stocks, or could only put a very small amount of their assets into stocks. Starting in the 80s, they were allowed to put a whole lot more money in. And uh, it actually was the public pension funds who managed money for the retirement of uh, government workers, particularly at the state and local level, many of those workers in unions. It was the public pension funds who became the bulwark pressing management to prioritize their interests. And what really made the change and put a a knife through the heart of post-war managerialism was stock-based pay, paying executives in stock, usually with stock options. And, you know, if you're being paid in stock options, you can, as an executive, enrich yourself as well as shareholders by focusing on share price. So that's kind of the, the evolution and pension funds really got the thing moving in a practical way starting in the 80s. 
Now, I want to skip over the um, the Henry Kravis era of the 80s and just turn to uh, the CalPERS era, the California Public Employees Retirement System, which uh, was in the lead of this pension fund activism. And uh, they had a what is called a cookbook. What was their formula? What was in that cookbook? Corporate governance is a phrase that refers basically to the practices and rules that structure the relationship among the three main groups that have an interest in the corporation, namely executives, workers, and owners. And the cookbook laid out practices and rules for prioritizing the interest of owners and checking the power of executives to make them less autonomous. The problem that Friedman had identified back in the early 1960s. There were three main things that they sought, and one was to weaken the power of executives over boards of directors, and the recipes included things like not allowing the CEO to also chair the board of directors, and what they wanted to do was change the structure of corporate boards so that directors elections, people are elected to the board with fixed terms, would not all happen at the same time, but rather would be staggered. The other area that they focused on was executive pay. And the idea here was to, first of all, tie pay to stock prices, gains in share prices, and also give shareholders the right to weigh in so-called say on pay to to hold a vote an advisory vote on on executive pay and the third main area in addition to boards and executive pay was takeovers you know the 80s were the era when there was a wave of hostile takeovers the claim by corporate raiders was that these takeovers were a way of getting rid of old style executives, putting new people in who would focus on uh, shareholder interests. So activist investors like CalPERS also had in their cookbooks the idea of reducing barriers to hostile takeovers. And those were the three main areas, three main recipes that they were seeking. And uh, they had considerable success in uh, implementing these changes. And the main way they did it was through shareholder activism, namely submitting proposals at shareholder meetings to implement what I call the cookbook, which is the collection of practices that were intended to make corporate governance, uh, shareholder friendly and thereby get more of the resources of the company going into shareholder pockets and also give shareholders more power to determine what corporations were doing. And I didn't mention how that worked, but it it included things like requiring companies to hold special meetings with their largest investors uh, and things like that. So that's the cookbook. But the basic idea behind the cookbook was to get more money and power for shareholders. I'm speaking with Sanford Jacoby, author of Labor in the Age of Finance, published by Princeton University Press. How did labor end up in an alliance with these shareholder activists? You would think that uh, a lot of what they were calling for was an anti-worker agenda. In fact, I interviewed uh, the chief counsel of CalPERS uh, during the 90s, and I asked him to comment on the propriety of funds held in the name of workers being used to pursue what seemed like a very anti-worker agenda. He didn't dispute that. He just said uh, his only concern was higher returns. So it seems like an odd alliance for uh, labor unions to make uh, with uh, these uh, forces of the shareholders. Well, that's the heart of the book, the strange alliance between union investors and large institutional investors. So first off, who are union investors? Well, there's a small category of uh, pension funds that are called Taft-Hartleys or multi-employer pension funds in which the Control of those pension funds is split between employers and 
worker representatives, often union leaders in the particular industry for which the fund exists. So those were pension funds in which unions had some ability to determine the behavior of the pension funds. Union investors also included entities like the AFL-CIO, which had its own pension fund for its employees and so on. So what labor realized was that it was in major decline in the 70s. Its organizing power had declined. It was getting harder and harder to organize workers. And it was casting about for new ways to restore numbers and power. And this was what is sometimes collectively known as uh, the union renewal movement. And one thing that people in the labor movement realized was that they were sitting on very large amount of assets. You know, these Taft-Hartley plans, the multi-employer plans have, it fluctuates somewhere between $500 billion and $700 billion in assets. And the state and local pension funds, whose assets are for the retirement of state and local workers. Many of those workers are, are union members. And so labor had some indirect influence over those state and local pension funds. So for example, with CalPERS, current and retired employees are allowed to elect trustees of the pension fund board. And state and local pension funds have several trillion dollars in assets. So if labor were to leverage those assets, it could have some influence over corporations. And this was seen as another form of union renewal, another arrow in the quiver to restore some of labor's power. To leverage those assets, what unions realized was that they could use shareholder activism as a way to pressure companies that unions were seeking to organize, had some kind of dispute with. And oftentimes these shareholder proposals involved issues that would demonstrate that the company wasn't doing things right, okay? But labor needed allies to get votes for its shareholder proposals. So the shareholder proposals came to have the flavor of the cookbook. They were about making boards more beholden to shareholders, tying executive pay to share prices, making it easy for hostile takeovers to occur. By submitting proposals of that flavor, at companies where unions were seeking to organize, they would get votes from the cookbook proponents, the large institutional investors, and thereby have the ability to put some pressure on executives. So it was a kind of uh, deal with the devil to uh, strengthen union power through shareholder activism, which required allies and to get the votes of those allies they had to support issues that enhanced shareholder power. Now, that wasn't the only reason unions got into shareholder activism. That was the main reason, but there was also the interest of pension funds in raising share prices so they would have enough money to pay for the retirements of their members. And this is where there is a kind of dual identity of American unions, both as worker advocates, as well as advocates for the assets in pension funds. And I should mention that access to a good pension, what's called a defined benefit pension, is the main economic advantage one accrues from being a union member. It isn't higher wages. The big gap between union and non-union workers are defined benefit pension plans. Two thirds of union workers today still are eligible for a defined benefit pension, but in the non-union sector, 
it's less than 10%. How much did uh, labor have to show for this strange alliance? You recount some cases and there were some individual successes, but looking back at the uh, strategy over the course of a couple of decades, how successful was it? Well, these things are hard to measure, but as you said, there were some successes, especially in the 90s, most of them in the service sector, janitors, security guards, hotel workers, many of the workers being recent immigrants or people of color. It hasn't been enough to have any significant impact on the number of workers belonging to unions. However, what labor people would tell you is that some of them, yeah, we did have this kind of devil's pact, but the problem really wasn't shareholders. The problem was executives. Executives were the one who really controlled the company, despite the cookbook and all the changes in corporate governance that went along with it. And where labor was successful, ironically, was in working with large institutional investors to crimp the autonomy of executives and make them responsible to someone. They were responsible to no one, labor people would say, and now they were least responsible to shareholders, not all of whom were like uh, a mutual fund. Some of these shareholders were pension funds and socially responsible investing funds and religious pension funds. So what labor would say and what I would say is that it had ironically more success in in changing corporate governance through its shareholder activism than it did in raising numbers. But, you know, the reality is that it's really hard to organize workers in the United States today very hard. So any any extra tool that unions can find that would help them put pressure on management is welcome. And that's what the shareholder activism was. You speak of it in the past tense. Is it still happening? Where is it today? There has been a decline in the most visible kinds of financial activism, namely shareholder activism. There are fewer shareholder proposals offered by union entities, namely union pension funds, the Taft-Hartleys, and state and local pension funds from blue states like California and New York. When there are proposals, they have less to do with corporate governance than with other issues where unions think they can get allies, in particular now around disclosure of political donations and of uh, environmental liabilities. That's the visible stuff. There's still a lot of financial activism, as I would call it, going on behind the scenes where unions gather information on What are the business interests of members of the boards of directors and who are the creditors of a corporation and then try to find vulnerabilities in the financial structure of the company and its board as a way to pressure the company flying below the visible radar. So there's a lot we, you know, that that is kept close to the chest. Another area in which things happen more or less below the radar uh, has to do when when there's uh, some kind of corporate restructuring, like a takeover. People in, in labor unions who follow these financial issues will, if they want to, put out the word that a takeover isn't going to be good for the company and give information to financial analysts. But this isn't shareholder activism. And I should say that a legacy of the era of shareholder activism is that many large unions today have so-called corporate affairs department. They have other names who coordinate financial tactics and organizing drives. And at the AFL-CIO, there is a similar entity 
which once was called the Office of, of Investment. And so there's now an infrastructure within the labor movement for carrying out these uh, below the radar financial research and that can be used to, to pressure employers, but less on the shareholder activism side. That was Sanford Jacobi, Distinguished Research Professor of Business and History at UCLA and author of Labor in the Age of Finance, published in June by Princeton. I've spent a lot of time looking at this material myself. Jacobi finds some merit in the alliance with shareholder activists. I don't find much at all. But I will say that the strategy he discusses at the end, investigating corporations targeted for organizing for financial vulnerabilities in shady associations, is far more promising. I've got a friend who did an MBA to do precisely that sort of work, and that could be very helpful. Though, of course, it's no substitute for the hard slog of organizing. Jacoby mentioned how access to a defined benefit pension plan is one of the great advantages conferred by union membership these days. That's very true. Over the last few decades, employers have successfully shifted pension risk to workers. The defined contribution plan, one in which the employer makes regular contributions without guaranteeing a set payout upon retirement, has largely replaced the defined benefit plan, one in which the employer commits to paying a fixed monthly amount for the duration of retirement. Now it's up to you to manage your money wisely. Only about 15% of the private sector workforce has a defined benefit plan today, down from 20% a decade ago. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, the Raincoat's original version of Fairy Tale in the Supermarket from their eponymous 1979 album, one of the greats of the punk era. Till next week, bye.